It's a blessing to be with you again. It's always a sad thing that when I come, Cord is never here, so I never get to visit with him, but I'm tickled to be able to support in any small way the efforts of your pastor to go to the nations and disciple them. Especially exciting that in the spirit of 1 Timothy 2.2, he's training others who will be able to train others. So what a wise use of efforts that he's able to be there and be training so many men who can therefore go out and train others and teach others the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. If you like to follow along with a minister in the Bible, I invite you to do that this morning. If you like, if you prefer to plant your Bible on a certain text or page and kind of stay there throughout the rest of the message, I invite you to turn to Psalm 139, although that's not where we're going to begin, it's where we're going to end. But you're welcome to turn to Psalm 139. Recently I came across a list server where... This question was being put to a Christian who had expressed that she was praying for a drought that was taking place in a third world country on the other side of the world. Someone wrote to her and said, you are praying for God to stop the rain in another part of the world? Just how big do you think God is anyway? On another discussion forum, Another unbeliever asks, tongue-in-cheek, obviously, just how big is God in measurements of either Wembley stadiums or areas of rainforest or double-decker buses? Now, while these questions are obviously from unbelievers, I think it does underscore the fact that as humans, we have a tendency to shrink God down, don't we, in our minds. Even if we don't believe in him, Even if we don't believe that God really exists, we can't even conceive of the God that people do believe in. He's just too big for our finite minds. Scientists estimate, and I don't know how they estimate these kinds of things, but that we can't actually directly conceive of anything over any size over 600 yards because that's kind of where we subconsciously place the horizon in our minds. So any, anything that's bigger than, say, 600 yards blows our minds is what that means. We kind of just start shrinking it down in our mind and saying, it must be smaller than what we're actually talking about. Like, for instance, take this headline from January 10th this year. Astronomers measure largest black hole as 18 billion times bigger than the sun. Now, if you remember from your fifth grade science class that the sun is a million times bigger than the earth, and this black hole that they've measured is 18 billion times bigger than the sun, okay, honestly, it's just meaningless, isn't it? We don't even know what that's talking about. That's Our little minds can't conceive of something 18 billion times bigger than a million times bigger than the earth. It's a difficult thing to consider concepts as big as black holes, even the sun, but to consider how big God is. 
how quickly our minds just fade, right? But it's important that we do consider how big God is because our trust in God, our glorying in God will be in direct proportion to how big we see God to be. And so I want to answer those questions that were asked on the Internet this morning as best I can, and admittedly, I'm going to do a pitiful job. But I want to, ask, I want to consider the question, just how big is this God? Now, I'm not trying to convince unbelievers this morning, although you're welcome to listen in. But I'm trying to remind Christians this morning of how big the God that you worship is. As he describes himself for us, purposefully, for our benefit, so that we will have a greater faith in his majesty and in his sufficiency for us. So I want to consider first just how big is this God? And then secondly, what are we meant to learn from this revelation? In other words, what's the application once we think about how big God is? Now, I'm going to try to do this, answer this question, just how big is this God with the amount of time that I have, which is a fairly short amount of time to talk about how big God is. And using only about 35 verses and limiting myself to three C.S. Lewis quotes. When we talk about just how big is God, words quickly fail, don't they? We might think of words, we might just kind of pile on words like massive or huge or gargantuan or humongous, enormous, gigantic, immense But we might use these words, especially in our age of exaggeration, to describe a jumbo jet or a football player. He's a huge man. Or even a sub-sandwich, right? It's an immense sandwich. And so it immediately fails in trying to talk about how big God is. Perhaps it's better to start with words like indescribable incomprehensible, unfathomable. But even as we do that, we have to be careful because we might begin to think of a God who's indescribable as being less real than the things we can describe, less strong than things that we can put our hands on, less big than things we can see and see their bigness, right? And so it's important reminder that we receive from C.S. Lewis. God is basic fact or actuality, the source of all other facthood. At all costs, therefore, he must not be thought of as a featureless generality. Just because he's indescribable, we cannot, we dare not think of him as this featureless generality. He is the most concrete thing there is, C.S. Lewis says. The most individual, organized, and minutely articulated being. And here's the point. He is unspeakable, not by being indefinite, but by being too definite for our 
unavoidable vagueness of language, right? We run out of words. Even though the English language has considerably more vocabulary than many other languages in the world, we quickly run out of words trying to describe God. Not because He's not real, but because He's so definite that our vague language cannot possibly describe all His attributes. We can't possibly begin to conceive him even mentally and there's many things that we can conceive of mentally that we still can't put into words but we can't even conceive of him mentally and so when we try to put it into words i mean we're talking about a whole nother level of limitation on our part but let's begin by just saying in other words he's bigger and better than words or thoughts can possibly describe The scripture tells us two things that I want to consider. He's over all the earth. That says something about how big he is. You know the question, you're praying about rain on the other side of the planet. Just how big do you think God is anyway? I mean, how big can can he possibly be that he could hear your prayer and then go around halfway the circumference of the globe and answer your prayer for rain? I mean, there's a lot of... Big concepts there, being here, going there, taking care of rain, which is something no human can even possibly do. But he's over all the earth, the Bible says. We start to think just about the earth. It's pretty amazing stuff. Did you know that the Pacific Ocean's deepest point, there you could submerge Mount Everest and have two miles of water between its peak and the surface of the water. And yet the Bible says in Psalm 135, 6, Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did he in heaven and in earth and in the seas and in all deep places. In the places where Mount Everest would be lost, you could never even find it. As big as Mount Everest is, it'd be drowned in the immensity of of the ocean. God is doing His purposes down there where you and I will never even go. I love the question that Philip Yancey asks, for whom is the deep sea creature's beauty? Because for thousands of years, humans couldn't even get down there to look at them. And finally, when we are able to occasionally glimpse a few of the creatures that are down there, They're gorgeous. They're magnificent to look at. They have little lights that they go around with down there. Who would have ever imagined? And for whom is the deep sea creature's beauty? If it's not that the Lord is pleased with what He's doing in the deep places of the earth. Did you know that the energy in one hurricane is equal to around 500,000, not light bulbs, but atomic bombs? One hurricane, the energy is equal, equivalent to 500,000 atomic bombs, and yet God's Word says in Psalm 148:8, fire and hail, snow, and vapor, stormy wind, like say a hurricane, fulfill His Word. 
So that means when Jesus was on the boat with the disciples and they were terrified of this storm that had come along that was blowing the wind and the waves around and was threatening to capsize their boat and they were so fearful and Jesus woke up and he stood up and he spoke to the wind and he said, peace be still, that was easy. And the winds and the waves immediately calmed themselves at his word. Why is that? Because even hurricanes are fulfilling his purposes. And so a little storm on little old Lake Galilee, piece of cake for Jesus Christ. This is not something where he has to flex his muscles to do. This is something that's easily within his capabilities. What the disciples didn't know is that all around the globe, storms thousands of times bigger than what they were in were being completely and perfectly controlled by Jesus at the exact same time. Psalm 139.18 says, The thoughts of God about one person are more in number than the sand. The thoughts of God about one person are more in number than the sand. There's more than 7.5 quintillion grains of sand on earth. And I'm going to let you look up quintillion. I looked it up and it just blew my mind. I'm not even going to go there. Big number. The thoughts of God about one person. One person, let's just say it this way. If he started out writing the number 7.5 quintillion, he'd never get to the end of it. Can you imagine God pouring out His vast wisdom and understanding on one person to that extent that He is at any given moment completely understanding everything about them? The hairs on your head are numbered. In our age of scientific discovery, you might have come to think that we've pretty much mastered the planet. But did you know that we have only actually documented about maybe 10 to 20 percent of the species that are on the planet? Of course, they don't know exactly because they haven't documented them all. But just estimating from what we do know, only 10 to 20 percent of all the life that is teeming all over this planet in the deep places of the sea, in the areas of rainforest. You remember the unbeliever says, how big is God in relation to areas of rainforest? There's creatures there that we haven't even met yet, much less categorized completely. And yet God says in Psalm 50, verses 10-11, For every beast of the forest is mine. And the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains. God is not surprised when scientists discover some new bird or some new uh, creature in some place of the world. He made them and he's been delighting in them as we've already read. He did what he wanted to in heaven and in earth and in the deep places and in the sea. And these things were made to please him. And when we discover them, they're just Tiny discoveries of the vastness of the complexity of what pleases God to do in this world. 
And so we should never think that we have mastered the globe, that we have come to understand even the place we live and all the beings that surround us. Psalm 40 and verse 15 kind of sums it all up for us. Behold the nations are as a drop of a bucket. The nations, whole countries, continents are like a drop in the bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Now, what we're going to see in a minute is that's actually an understatement. To say that they're small dust of the balance is saying actually that they're bigger than they really are in the vastness of who God is. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing. It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers. C.S. Lewis says, We may ignore, but we can nowhere evade the presence of God. The whole world is crowded with him. The whole world is crowded with God. So that the Indiana Jones explorer who goes out into the deepest, darkest place that nobody else has ever been is just discovering God's backyard. The world is crowded with Him. We can ignore Him. We can suppress the knowledge of Him, as it says in Romans 1. But we cannot evade Him. We cannot escape Him because the world is crowded with Him. Because you see, he's not just over all the earth, he's over all creation. Let's get just a little perspective on that. Let's just talk about the solar system. First, you'll have to collect the objects that you need. So you take an a average size bowling ball, eight inches. And we'll use that to scale to be our sun in the middle of our solar system, okay? So at that scale, it means that the earth would be like a peppercorn. So you take the sun, you take the earth, a peppercorn, and then really Pluto is more like, more like a pinhead. Uh, it's actually smaller than a pinhead, but we'll just use a pinhead because otherwise we'll lose it, right? So we take the sun at eight inches across. We take the earth as a peppercorn. And at that scale... Earth is 26 paces or about um, 26 yards away from the sun. So if we set our bowling ball here in the pulpit, (coughs) you walk 26 paces out into the parking lot there and you set your peppercorn down, that's the scale of our solar system there between the sun and the earth. But Pluto, if you want to set Pluto down, you have to keep walking. In fact, you have to walk almost half a mile from the bowling ball. So you trek and you trek and you trek with your little little pinhead in your hand. And when you finally get about half a mile away, you turn around and of course the eight inch bowling ball isn't even visible anymore, but you look down in your hand and that's Pluto. And that's the size, that's the scale of our Solar system. If we take the nearest star, just to give a little context to even our solar system, right? At that same scale, the nearest star besides the sun, Proxima Centauri, 
is 400 miles away. So we're talking about the distance between New York City and Rome, Italy. So you don't just walk half a mile. You walk from New York City to Rome, Italy, and there you find the nearest star to our solar system. Now what's amazing is that God has said not just that he's doing what he pleases in the earth, but in the heavens. That God has stretched out the heavens, he says, as a curtain in Isaiah 40, 22, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. Now that's a remarkable thing to compare it to because let's say you take your little six-man tent out in the yard and you set it up for the boys to go spend the night. Are you limited to that tent? Is your life Your existence limited to that tent? No, it's just a place that you set up and you can occupy, but that no way, in no way describes all that you are or who you are. And yet the heavens, the whole universe, all the stars, everything that God has stretched out in creation is described as just a tent. That God opens up the flap and he comes in to dwell with men. But it doesn't begin to describe who he is or the bigness of his existence. He tells the number of the stars by name. He calleth them by their names. Notice, though, that God is not part of his creation. See, this is the problem that so many other religions have made is they've equated God with his creation. And we're going in that direction, sadly, in America today. We're worshiping the creation rather than the creator. Worshiping the earth rather than the creator of heavens and earth. But God is not part of his creation. It's a tent that he's stretched out and that he dwells in because he pleases to, not because we could possibly demand his attention. The Russian cosmonauts, when they finally made it up into space back in the mid-20th century, made a great deal of the fact that they had gone into space and not found God there. C.S. Lewis replied to that and said, Looking for God, or heaven, by exploring space is like reading or seeing all Shakespeare's plays in the hope that you will find Shakespeare as one of the characters or Stratford, which is, of course, where he lived, as one of the places. Shakespeare is, in one sense, present at every moment of every play, isn't he? Shakespeare is present at every moment of every play that he's written. As it's acted out, it's the acting out of what he has conceived. And so, yes, in a very real sense, he's there. God is related to the universe more as an author is related to a play than as one object in the universe is related to another. You don't go into space and hope to see God there any more than you go to see a Shakespeare play hoping to find Shakespeare there. You see, he is stretched out to this universe and it's the tent that he dwells in, but this is not the same thing as God. He's not limited to his Existence here, although he has marvelously, incomprehensibly condescended to come and care about what's going on here. And so these are some of the lessons as we think about just how big is God. And, of course, we've not even scratched the surface, but 
What are we meant to learn from this revelation as we see in Scripture how that fire and hail and snow and vapor and stormy wind fulfill His Word? And how that God does whatever He's pleased to do in heavens and in the earth and in the deep places and in the seas? And as we see that He calls the stars by their names and that He stretches out the heavens like a tent to dwell in? What are we meant to learn from the revelation of how big God is? Of course, I'm not even going to scratch the surface here either, but to name a few things. First, the smallest of, the smallness of man, right? And the futility of his efforts to rebel against God. What a strange thing that we as humans have lauded ourselves, have raised our own vision of ourselves to the point where we think that we can make a difference by shaking our fist at God and somehow hope to dethrone Him by our little fist-shaking rebellion. In Obadiah 1 and verse 4, Though thou exalt thyself as the eagle, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, Thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. You see, the eagle plants a nest far, far, far above what almost any other animal can get to because it's safe, right? If only the eagle can fly up to this height and reach that nest, whatever's in that nest is pretty safe. But the Lord says, if you try, like the eagle, to plant your nest even in the stars, I will bring you down. There's no place safe from the judgment of God. Jeremiah 10.10 10, the, the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and an everlasting King. At His wrath the earth shall tremble. This is not just a command. It's a prophecy. It's saying, when God comes down, and we read about it in Titus 2 in our scripture reading this morning, you remember how it said that we are looking for the glorious appearance, and I love this description, of the great God. There's only one great God, but He's the great God. We're looking for the glorious appearance of the great God. Revelation tells us that when He appears, the skies will just disappear. I mean, I don't know how that even happens, but I guess He's sustaining everything by His hand, and when He's done, He's done with it. And so, when we're looking for the glorious appearance of the great God, when that event happens, the earth shall tremble, Jeremiah says, and the nation shall not be able to abide his indignation. There will be no one, no one shaking their fist at God when he comes in judgment. Every knee, Romans tells us, will bow. Every tongue will confess. Because at his presence, it will be an irresistible display of the bigness, the majesty, the greatness of God. And every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, 1 Corinthians 10.22 asks this very poignant, pointed question, 
Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? That's a good question, isn't it? You see, God is jealous for his glory. Rightly so, because he deserves all glory. Sometimes we use jealousy and envy interchangeably, but they're not actually interchangeable. Envy is desiring something that is not yours. Jealousy is desiring something that is yours. And God is jealous for his glory. Like a husband is jealous for his wife. That's a good thing. He ought to be jealous for his wife, for the affection of his wife, for the love of his wife, for the protection of his wife. He ought to be jealous for his wife. And God is jealous for his glory. And do we provoke him to jealousy by refusing him the glory he deserves? Paul says, are we stronger than he? Be careful who you're picking a fight with. Are you stronger than the God of the universe? So when we consider the bigness of God, we see the smallness of man and the futility of his efforts to rebel against God. We see also the impossibility of escaping God's presence, don't we? Jeremiah 23, 23 and 24, Am I a God at hand, saith the Lord? That was a mistake that the enemies of Israel made in the Old Testament, if you remember. They fought him in one place of geography, of topography, and they said, well, maybe he's only a God of this kind of topography. Let's take him instead of in the hills, let's fight him in the plains. Let's fight him in the valleys. Let's fight him in some other location, some other way, because maybe he is not a God of the plains. But God says, am I a God at hand that you can run away from the mountain and fight in the plain and somehow you've escaped me or my presence? Am I a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him? Do not I fill heaven and earth? Do not I fill heaven and earth? How utterly impossible to escape the presence of a God that fills the heavens and the earth. Or as C.S. Lewis said, a God who crowds the universe with his presence. We're meant to learn from the bigness of God also the sovereignty of God's reign. Psalm 33, 8 through 12. Let all the earth fear the Lord. It's appropriate. It's appropriate that we fear God. Not with a terror that drives us away from God because perfect love casts out fear, doesn't it? But with an awesome, reverential trembling at His presence and recognition of His greatness. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spake and it was done. What an amazing kind of understatement is there. He just and a two-letter word describes creation of the entire universe and everything that we've been talking about. He spake and it was done. The whole thing. The deep places of the earth, the hurricanes, the stars. puts out. No matter what trials or persecutions or suffering you may endure for the sake of Christ, who really can harm you if you're a follower of that which is good? No one. 
Because God is ordering his world to his glory and for the good of his people. As John Knox said, a man, a man with God is always in the majority. Right? That's all it takes. You can stand all by yourself like David against Goliath, and yet a man with God is always a majority. So that means if you're having to stand by yourself against the stream in your workplace or in your classroom or in your barracks or in your family, a man or woman or child with God is always a majority. You are always on the conquering side if you are on the side of this big, great God. We're meant to also understand from the bigness of God the wonder of redemption. The wonder, the wonder of redemption. Why would God send His Son? Calling us grasshoppers is really an exaggeration, isn't it? Who could claim could put a claim to God that says you must send your only son to die for me. Let me say it this way at least. The reason God sent his son was not that he was lonely for the peppercorn. Okay? That's just not it. In our day and age, we have shrunk God so small and puffed ourselves up so much that we actually have hymns, we actually have sermons coming out of Christian pulpits that's saying God sent His Son because He couldn't stand the thought of an eternity without you. God did not send His only begotten Son to die because He was lonely for the peppercorn. And He had to have the peppercorn. And all the little people on it. No. No, it wasn't because we had any claim on His affections. We have the right perspective of the bigness of God when we say like Solomon instead, Second Chronicles 6.18, Will God in very deed dwell with men on earth? I mean, He's got the whole heavens to live on. He could sit on the circle of Jupiter instead of the circle of the earth. What claim do we have to the presence, to the special presence and recognition and notice of God? No claim. No claim. Will God in very deed dwell with men on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. There again, he's filling heaven and earth. The earth and all the creation is crowded with him. The heaven and heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house which I've built, Solomon says, for God. We ought to be in awe every day, shouldn't we, when we come on the Lord's Day and to think that God has promised to meet with us here? What claim could we have on Him to require that of Him? None. But what a mercy of Him that He promises that every time we're even just two or three of the grasshoppers meet together in His name, that He's there in the midst of them. The psalmist writes in Psalm 8, 3-4, When I consider thy heavens, thy heavens, he owns them. 
When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers. God didn't even have to build a scaffolding to make the universe. Can you believe that? This is not like, you know, we build a skyscraper and we have to get the cranes and we have to get the, all the scaffolding and all this stuff to put the whole thing together. This is the work of God's fingers. He didn't have to climb up on a ladder to build the universe. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man? What is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of man that thou visit? Being formed in the mother's womb is intimately known of him. And because of that, we are meant to notice also the sufficiency of his shoulder. Again, in Psalm 139, notice this. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Isn't that amazing? Thou knowest my downsitting, my uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. This is the intimacy of his notice. Thou compassest my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but Lord... Thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thy hand upon me. We're meant to know that God is intimately involved in our lives and this God is so big that we can always know he'll be sufficient for us. You know, really, that's the most impressive thing to me. Not that God fills the earth with his presence, but that he fills the big spaces with his presence. like... If we think about our little model, think about how much space is in between the little bowl, the little bowling ball and the peppercorn, right? Think about all that space that is there. Nothing is there except God, and he's filling that place. What's so impressive to me is not that God fills the earth with his presence as much as he fills all those spaces with his presence. But here's the amazing thing, is that God is so big that he can even fill the space in you. That means the space that's left behind by a husband or a child that's lost. I'm sure you all read the tragic news Wednesday of Stephen Curtis Chapman's youngest adopted daughter being killed in the driveway of their home. I cannot imagine. They just celebrated 10 days earlier her fifth birthday. They were on their way to the graduation party for their son, Talk about a reversal in emotions, a reversal in situation. All of a sudden, joy and celebration is turned into tragedy. And hardest to imagine is that the young boy, the young son, was the one driving the vehicle. What must he feel like? Not because he should feel guilty, but how could someone experience something like that and not be scarred forever by it? But do you know God is able He's sufficient, even for that tragedy, even for that need, even for that immense space, that cavernous aching in the hearts of their family. God is big enough to fill the spaces of his creation, including the spaces that are in you. And he's the only one. He's the only one that's big enough to fill that space 
that void that is in you. Thomas Akempis wrote, God alone satisfies. Why is that? Because God alone is big enough to fill the spaces of the hearts of his creation. May God bless you.